You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Stargazing Edition. Sanity at the Movies. My name is Nathan Albertson, your humble and obedient host, joined by my good friends, the Booketing Crew, t- today. We got Brandon Chastine there. Hey. He's a scholar who's the baller of reading over there on the Booketing. He's also... Uh, I'm like, on the Booketing. What's that? Right now I'm on the Booketing? No, no, no. Over there on the Booketing. Over there on that other podcast. Oh, booketing. yeah, yeah, yeah. I He's also you. a guy that has been known to make his eyeballs point in the direction of a, a cinematic thing. That's right. Occasionally. occasionally. The insight of an Obi Wan Kenobi and the wisdom of a Yoda and the body of a <laughs> I, knew. I had a feeling it was going there, Nathan. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Brandon's getting more healthy all the time. He likes to go to the gym. It's good. It's good uh, times for Brandon Chastine. And speaking of fit, svelte, and handsome. I'm Nathan your obedient host. Yeah, there we no, go. Uh, yep. <laughs> You're calling them all today, Looks Brandon. like Han Solo yep. himself. <laughs> no, no, no. Speaking of Fitz, Felt, and Handsome, the... What char- What Star Wars character would Jake be, Brandon? We may have just said it. Han Solo? Han Solo. Is, is uh, Jake, Jake's not... I've got not a bad feeling about think this. Of, I don't think of Jake as particularly roguish. Jake, Jake has no. many fine qualities. Roguishness, not necessarily he one of them. He would be... But he's not as square as Luke Skywalker either. Maybe he's Anakin. Is he going to go bad and betray us all and kill the younglings? If if I could be Clone Wars Anakin and live there and not go bad, that'd be pretty... I can can see That'd be pretty awesome. He's Anakin who never went bad. Yeah, Clone Wars Anakin, the one that... Clone Wars Anakin, yeah. There we go. So who am I? I'm Jabba the Hutt. No, no, no. You're you're like Yoda. I don't know. I'm Yoda? Okay. Sure. I'll be Yoda. You can be Yoda. Eh, Yoda's... Obi-Wan? Yoda's kind of a drag. So is Obi-Wan. The mentors are also boring in Star Wars. Can Um, I be young Obi-Wan from the original series? Sure. From whatever sure. there. Why not? Thanks. All right, guys. We're talking about A New Hope, 1977's classic work of cinema but directed by George Lucas, Star Wars, A New Hope. You guys excited about this? Yeah. So, so very excited. I am too. So excited to... What's that line from that robot that you want to just oh, yeah. kill? Uh, <laughs> so happy. So to... glad to be talking. Something yeah, like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That stupid robot from Solo. Yeah. The feminist oh, robot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fembot. The fembot. Now, Nathan. Yes, Better sir. fit in an Austin Powers film anyway. I don't think I realized this was directed by George Lucas. Didn't you, Brandon? No. Well, it was. Really? <laughs> yeah. That what? surprises me. I knew the other two weren't. No, no. George Lucas generally functioned as an executive producer on these movies and was the creative visionary behind them through episode, the sixth movie, episode three, through the yeah. first six films that were released. But- he only directed of the original trilogy, the first one. Really? And was very famed as a director that wasn't particularly... If you read between the lines, I mean, the hype and the... yeah, You always have to read between the lines with these classic films because there's very few people that are willing to go on record and tell you how terrible it really was. It's all, you know, the mythology of Hollywood. Hollywood has always been about self, self-myth-making. self you, you won't find it in an industry where... There's just more hype and more. I mean, obviously, why wouldn't it? It's a hype machine. Yeah. So that's what it exists to do is to hype and promote. And so it doesn't, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that it's sometimes hard to get the straight story. But reading between the lines, it seems like George Lucas is a pretty, uh, and I don't want to say a difficult man, like he's angry and ranting and raving, but more like he's shy 
and a little bit disengaged and the kind of yeah. you know actors not as said, assertive as you need a director to be. Well, they would say like his direct he would he would watch from the monitor and then he'd say, "Okay, uh, do that one a little a little faster." That'd be a that'd be a, a George Lucas direction, which if <laughs> you know, if you're Alec Guinness or somebody like that, you know, a Royal Shakespeare okay and you gave me this weird dialogue and you're not going to help me like flesh understand this. what you want what's behind it but yeah. actually you know like tim burton like so many directors i don't know why tim burton popped into my head but he's a visualist right he's he cares about what it look he actually does care about things like like to george lucas's mind i think what he really cares about is well let's do that a little faster because he's thinking in terms of rhythm he's thinking in terms of pace he's thinking about what it's going to look like edited together and Actually, the cl- the quintessential example of this was Hitchcock. Hitchcock's actors always felt like, and and said, went on record, said that they felt like pawns. You know, yeah. like like they were there to do his will and to puppets, and not to act. You know, like a really great director, an actor's director, he will talk to you and coddle you and and get you to sort of feel the right way, and and he'll design the scene around the way that you're feeling. You know, Martin Scorsese, if he's working with Robert De Niro, he'll say, "Okay, Bob, let's do another one." And how do you feel about this? You want to you want to play it this way this time, and they'll have a lot of fun, and they'll spend all day, you know, playing in the sandbox together. George Lucas not like that at all. He has a visual thing in his mind, so he just wants his little puppets, as you said, Jake, to move from here to there. Huh. Uh, not a actor's director, as you can definitely tell. In, in all the movies that he directs. In it, the movies that he directs, but yeah. specifically, well... I mean, it, it'll show up, I think, again in the... One through three as well. Absolutely. In one through three, it's much less mitigated. I think he knew... He was smart in the way that he worked within his own limitations in the first one. And then he got some really good directors, including Irving Kirshner, who just brought Empire Strikes Back to life. All those characters feel so much richer, and everybody loves mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back primarily because of the character work, I think. Just the little moments, the I know, and things like that. All the romance between Han Solo and Leia. I, George Lucas wouldn't be capable of doing that stuff to no, save his life. He would be life. telling Leia how much her skin is like the sand. Right. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Anakin's love making. It's not like the sand. No, he hates the sand. That's right. Well, maybe, maybe Han Solo loves it's the sand. It's coarse. Right. <laughs> Not like you. <laughs> well, if you watch the behind the scenes, this is all a tangent, but if you watch the behind the scenes stuff of the of the prequel trilogy, what you see is a man with a Starbucks coffee sitting in a chair, looking at a monitor, looks pretty disengaged, and you see a bunch of actors flailing around on green screens. And then you hear like voiceover of people talking about how magical it was. But reading between the lines, you can kind of start to understand why the prequels are the way they are. Cause yeah, who's the... I was reading something about the director of... Uh... The bird, Birdman. Birdman, yeah. Who's that? Who's I forget some Spanish name. Inaritu. Yeah, Inaritu. And he was saying that he thinks he has mild ADHD or something mm-hmm. because for him he can go from one thing to another and just be juggling all these different aspects of the script, the actors, and the other things that a director needs to be juggling. It makes right. me almost think that a person who is a successful director is probably someone who could have also been a, a successful CEO or something. I, th- I think that's absolutely true. And the the really great ones like Spielberg, Spielberg is nothing if not a savvy businessman and a savvy yeah. self-promoter. You see him in interviews. He's on a mission. He knows what he has to say. He's just a really good, he's, a, he's almost a good producer first and then a, a great director second. But he's the complete package. A lot of these guys are just good at, they're good administrators. Yeah. And if they're good self-promoters, a good self-promoter slash administrator is really what you look for for a director of one of these franchise kinds of films. That was um, interesting because we think of the director as just being like this artist. Right. But they have to have a, a bit more than that, too. They can't just be like a novelist. 
Well, the interesting thing that, that, that like the, the Marvel model now is really interesting because what they will get is they will get indie directors like the Russo brothers who come from TV and come from mumblecore indie movies, and they will get them to do the character work. And then they have this machine that administrates and produces the mm. action scenes. Yep. And so somebody, they can get someone like, uh, what's his face, Wahiti or whatever Taco that guy's Taco name is. They can get somebody clever to work with the actors and... Figure out how to get the best out of Chris Hemsworth as Thor, which nobody had ever done before. Right, hmm. right, exactly. And that's really smart. And that's... I argue, Figure out how to build chemistry between Hemsworth and two, you know, Tessa Thompson and... Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, and if if George Lucas had done that with the prequels, I think that they would be probably successes because George Lucas is a good architect and he's a good administrator and he's a good visionary. What he's not is a good director of actors or a good screenwriter. And so if he just outsourced, if he just outsourced or delegated those jobs, I think he would have been fine. And that's basically what he did. And Empire Empire Strikes Strikes Back Back will be proof of that, which is you know one of the best. As 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 I'm as I'm surprising no one by saying. And then Disney has also proven that that model can not work when you have someone get out of hand like Ryan Johnson. Yeah, or well, Disney's just made every the wrong choice in every way because they let Ryan Johnson do what he want, and then they brought in the very clever what's their faces, the guys that did Spider Verse and Twenty One Jump Street and all these kinds of things. And, oh yeah, they're, uh, the, the Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, yeah, Lord and Miller. <laughs> Lord and um, Miller. Yeah. Were these very clever hipster directors? Hipster is not a word that Jake likes very much, but uh, no, but it, they are brilliant. Yeah, and they're. Hip and they're, they're the funny. ones who are behind the cool. Lego movie, right? What's that? They're yeah, Lego them. movie is a great movie. Uh, yeah. Lego movie, Spider Man into the Spider Verse, the Jump Street movies. I didn't know they were behind Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Yeah, they're yeah. they're the oh wow yeah they're the visionaries behind that whole thing. So if you think any of the really good they took interesting yeah what, kids movies you know yeah the Lego good movie inter- was great yeah yeah like innovative in a way. It, yeah, and so was I mean Spider Man into the Spider Verse yeah. into a, a genre that had been. Done to death, eaten eaten over, picked over. How many Spider-Man movies are there? And they did something completely fresh and exciting and cool. When you think about Lego movie, the fact that they can make it work where you have that Will Ferrell scene at the end Mm -hmm. with the dad and the son. Yeah. They get real emotion out of it, but it doesn't seem corny and cheesy to be flipping between these worlds. Well, it's it's really moving. And I think we're going to talk today a lot about the hero's journey, I'm sure. Lego movie, far and away the best deconstruction and the best sort of meta commentary on the whole hero's journey. Yeah. While still having a lot of uh, sympathy, emotion, and sweetness to it. Yeah. It's the which difference. is like that. I mean, that is the line. It, you're, you're, I bet you're going to bring up Shrek. I'm about to say Shrek. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Like Sh- Think Shrek's about how a great. Shrek tr- trashed fairy tales and just had a chip yeah. on its shoulder about Disney and everything. It's, that it was angry. Yeah. It was angry. And these guys, they can deconstruct it without feeling angry. Well, it's but because. While feeling. What ends up happening in those movies is it works very much like a metaphor, like a poetic metaphor, mm-hmm. <laughs> because what the movies end up being about is a son dealing with what it means to be a, a hero through his father as well. Right. Yeah. And then the second one worked because it was about a boy having to then learn how to relate to his sister. So yeah, you bring in these geniuses for yeah. Solo and they're perfect. Mm-hmm. They are the perfect guys to choose for a Han Solo movie. Right. There's not a better decision you could have made than to take Lord and Miller and give them Han Solo. A Han Solo franchise is what they were actually given. Right. And then <laughs> they did something just a little too creative and yep. a little too unique and a little too whatever, and we'll never know. Well, Hollywood is very risk averse, and that is partly George Lucas's fault, as we'll talk about. Hollywood is also... But, but, we should me... complete the story because people won't know. 
Lord and Miller got fired oh, from, from Solo. From Solo, And yeah. they brought in Ron Howard, who is the single most vanilla... The most pedestrian director pedestrian of all time. <laughs> director that you could ever want. And he's good at what he does, but yeah. he's gonna, what he's going to give you is vanilla. And so you got a vanilla movie that some people really love and some people really hate. And... I liked it at the time, but the more I think about it, the more it does seem a crime that they made a Han Solo or a Han Solo movie that that's just kind of that that boring. Like, yeah, there's just nothing very inspiring about it, and that in and of itself is almost more annoying than the Ryan Johnson movie. I don't know. Yeah, and people are gonna blame Alden Ehrenreich and all kinds of other things. Alden Ehrenreich was not the problem with that movie. No, the problem with that movie was the movie. It was it was yeah, it was Ron Howard. It was. Well, it, was it was the Disney machine. Was I don't machine, even blame yeah. Ron Howard. Ron Howard came in. Did what he was told. Did it, did what he was told to do with the scraps of what was yeah. there. And But the fact that Ron Howard is that kind of director that can just be told what to do. Right. Yeah. He's become, I mean, that's what he does with the Da Vinci Code movies. Right. He had a chance to be something different. Apollo 13. Been. Apollo 13 was his last good movie, I think. Well, I feel like this might be a good transition into a little history and context of Star Wars because it's an interesting thing. If you, if l- let me take you guys back to a time, the 1970s, when Hollywood was not as risk averse, and <laughs> the death of risk of, of risk in Hollywood <laughs> was basically <laughs> Star Wars. But it's a really interesting time, the 70s going into the 80s, because the 70s was the boom of big studio creativity. You had the French Connection. You had The Godfather. You had all these classic films. Even the big money makers, things like The Exorcist, really popular movie, also a really risky, brutal movie about a little kid becoming a cursing demon <laughs> possessed. <laughs> you know. But but directors were moving in the, I mean the, the the directors were more auteurs at that point, right? Yeah, the, like, that auteur theory was actually a thing that people talked about, which if you don't know what that is, that's just the idea that there's this 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 creative voice behind a film, and it's, it was one guy, an auteur. So like Spielberg is the auteur of Spielberg movies, and, and if you look at Spielberg movies, you can see common themes and common ways of doing things. But it was a really exciting time for experimentation and for the ratings code had kind of died in the 50s and 60s. So suddenly you could do, and I'm not saying this is good, but I'm just saying this is how it was. Suddenly you could do sex and you could do violence in a way that you had, you had not every movie had to be a family movie. You know, the ratings code, mm-hmm. and it was run by these Catholic people and it was really restrictive. There were rules in the 40s, like a man, if a woman was on a bed, a man could not be in the in the same bed. He had to have one foot on the ground if they were going to do a scene where like he's sitting on the bed, he could not lift his feet. They had all these ridiculous rules. So you watch an old sitcom and everybody likes to make fun of it now, but you have like Lucy, Lucy and Ricky will be in separate beds. Like we can't even acknowledge that married couples might share yeah. a bed. A bed. Yeah. Um, but it would often be auteurs who would get that sort of freedom, right? Yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was saw something the other day about how Hitchcock was one of the first to be allowed to show a toilet flushing mm-hmm. in Psycho. Psycho begins with a toilet flushing, and it's a really famous, like, groundbreaking yeah. thing. Got that freedom because he was Hitchcock. Well, it's the same way that, look, Hollywood's always a business, and people just need to know that. And if you're a successful person, you're going to have more latitude than if you're not. I mean, Spielberg can bend the ratings to his will, things like Gremlins or Temple of Doom. You know, why didn't Raiders of the Lost Ark get an R instead of a PG? Well, Spielberg's a really popular guy that was bringing in money at the time. Which I think that's a, this is a quick aside. Right. I think that's an interesting point at which you can show that art does affect morality. Right. Because when authors, when people like that get that freedom, it then presses boundaries that people thought were immoral. Right. Or at least immodest. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think movies really expose that for us. And books have done the same thing. Right. But books never, I don't think books ever had the platform that movies have had, whether people like that or not. Yeah, no, I think a movie can reach a, a lot of people really quickly in a way that yeah. even a best-selling book. But that's because we have, and we do have to be careful. You have to be careful about the entertainment you take in. Oh, absolutely. Because it is trying to shape. For monetary purposes, a lot of right. times, these sorts of things. Well, what you see in the 70s with movies is everybody responding to the fact that they had this freedom. And it's a scary thing. It's a really scary thing. And I think you see that reflected in the movies. It's scary to be unchained and to be morally able to go where you want to go. And so the maybe the big example from the 70s is The Exorcist. And it's a movie about a little girl that gets possessed by a demon. And it really tapped in. It was a really popular movie, I think, be- not just because of the gory special effects, but because it really tapped into this fear that older people had about where younger people were going. Are our kids just possessed by demons? I mean, that's the that's the that's the subtext. It's not even subtext. That's the text. <laughs> uh, are our kids possessed by demons? Is in fact the text of <laughs> The Exorcist. And so you have this really scary, these really scary themes, and people dealing. You know, The Godfather is about a man who has a choice between being good and evil. And what does he choose, Brandon? He chooses an orange and a heart attack. He chooses an orange and a heart attack, but then his son chooses to be evil. He, evil, you know, yeah. um, and so you have these movies dealing with these heady things, being experimental, and then somebody named George Lucas had the idea, and it was an explicit idea that came to him to just do something fun. And he thought, "Hey, you know what? I really liked as a kid. I liked Flash Gordon serials, and so." I'm going to see if I can get the rights to that. Flash Gordon was a comic book character who was dashing and, you know, had it was space opera. Basically, it was proto-Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we think of it now. But Star Wars is post-Flash Gordon, actually. And so George Lucas just thought, I'm going to get the rights to this. And he couldn't. So he decided to write his own little space adventure. <laughs> what? <laughs> that just makes me laugh. What? It'd be like if Tolkien was trying to get the rights to write a Thor book and he couldn't. So he came up with the Lord of the Rings. So he came up with the Lord of the Rings. That's exactly. That's a really good analogy, actually. Because everybody knew Flash Gordon. And then George Lucas just made up these dumb names. You know, uh, I think Luke Skywalker's name was like something Starkiller. First draft was called The Rise of the Wills. And he just came up with this stuff and he would write down little nonsense words and, and come back to them and cross some out and say, well, Obi-Wan, what? And it all seems so natural now. But you have to Im- imagine a guy just in a very mechanical engineer. This isn't Tolkien, you know, looking up uh, old manuscripts and, and adapting like these languages yep. and drawing. This is a dude just making up nonsense yep. <laughs> and seeing what, what of it sticks and what he wants to come back to. And he went and we went through draft and draft and draft and got to deal with 20th Century Fox, I think, because that they were not risk averse at the time, because they were they were they believed in auteurs. They believed in these people that were successful and exciting, these young men. And George Lucas was one of them. You know, he was considered an outsider, kind of weird, young genius. And so what George Lucas actually said about Star Wars is they didn't 20th Century Fox didn't bet on Star Wars. They bet on me. They didn't understand it. A bunch of studios turned it down. But what what Alan Ladd, who ran 20th Century Fox at the time, what he said was, I I, I basically, I I trust you, George. You want to try something? And and they gave him a small budget. I think it was like $8 million million or something, which would buy you a decent amount. That's that's like a mid-sized budget. And they went over, I think, the... The, the final amount for Star Wars was like $11 million or something like that. George Lucas had to start a special effects company, ILM. If you've ever seen them, they, they are special effects these days. You know, they work on all the big movies. He had to start that company. He had huh. to build everything from scratch. They had to 
create all these techniques to bring this world to life. And they did. And it was a huge success. And it changed everything. Star Wars made one comma six oh four comma eight five seven comma six zero zero. That's one billion six hundred and four million dollars. That is the domestic gross adjusted for inflation of the various re-releases. Like that's all the money that the original Star Wars movie has made over the years. That's a lot. Put together. That's a lot of money. Uh in 2015, Star Wars made seven hundred million from toys alone. What two, year? Just in 2015. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. We're going to talk a lot about why Star Wars caught on and what it was able to, and why it did this. But let me just talk about what it created. Because we're all, everything that we've talked, that we're going to talk about on this podcast is downwind from Star Wars. So you have to understand that even if you're not a big Star Wars person, guy or gal, you don't realize how much of your movie going diet, maybe, if you don't know Hollywood history, you don't realize how much of your, your movie going diet, what you see, your Avengers movies. It all flows out of Star Wars, right? So the whole idea of the summer blockbuster season, the whole idea that Hollywood would basically throw all of its money and all of its time and all of its talent into creating these tentpole films comes from two gentlemen, uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg and Mr. George Lucas. And Steven Spielberg released Jaws, which was a big, pulpy, exciting, scary shark movie. And then Lucas created Star Wars. And what you have to realize is that prestige Hollywood pictures were serious during the 70s and before that. So like the money would have been going into making things like The Godfather. And as things had started to become bifurcated between the prestige stuff and then the B-movies, Roger Corman was a famous B-movie producer of that era. And he would cre- he created all these little horror movies based on Edgar Allan Poe. He also did pulpy space adventures and things like this, but no money went into that stuff. Monster movies, the 50s monster movies, you know, you see the posters with the giant ants and stuff like yeah. that. These were generally not the movies that the money went into. They were silly things for kids that a slick producer could turn a profit on. A lot of times a really sleazy guy who was like a stu- an outsider even would as to this day you can still kind of break in horror movies is where this happens to this day because they're cheap to make you just need prosthetics and they're they're sold on concept right it's not a star thing it's not a, yeah. it's not a novel you know the godfather was a story that everybody was excited to see told because it was a very famous novel and it was a very prestigious thing to do and so it was a property that everybody understood but a giant bug movie sells itself not because it has a star not because it has any kind of prestige, but because people want to see a giant giant bug. bug. Um, People want to see the attack of the 50-foot woman because there's a big bosomy woman on the poster and she's 50 feet. (laughs) And that's what they're paying for. And this used to be the province of sleazy little producers that would churn out these cheap things. And the genius, what people have to understand, the genius of George Lucas was to say, what if we did this with all the prestige? What if we put the two together and we actually took seriously making a pulpy kids movie what if i took all of the b movies that i loved as a kid and put all of hollywood into making what would have been really cool what i wish it would have been for me as a kid right and that's always the way that pulp has been is it's it basically i mean those producers the the sleazy cigar chopping producers of the 50s in hollywood the people that made these these b movies and z movies they would have said all you need is a poster like right like the poster was yeah. what sold the movie so the poster would have a busy bosomy woman being carried off by a monster and little kids will pay to see teenage boys especially will pay to see a bosomy woman carried off by a monster but the problem is 
the monster sucks and the woman's not that beautiful and it's not that interesting. So you're 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 paying for a concept, but you're actually jilting, jipping uh, people because you mm-hmm. can't afford. You don't have the resources to actually give them what's promised. It's it's a bait and switch, yep. right? And so the genius of George Lucas and Spielberg is to say, what if we gave them the bait and then we didn't do a switch? Like, what if we actually yeah. gave them a space opera? What if we actually gave them? An adventure movie. You know, James Bond movies even are pretty slow and they have one or two set pieces. But when you sell a James Bond movie, you say it's the most exciting, sexy thing. Well, what if we actually made something that was that exciting and that sexy, right? Like uh, what, what yeah. if what if we actually had something that was wall-to-wall adventure? James Bond promises wall-to-wall adventure. Let's actually do a movie that's just wall-to-wall adventure. And so yeah. modern Hollywood was born. So modern Hollywood was born. Star Wars, 1977, arguably, is the birth of modern Hollywood. And everything you like about it, everything you hate about it was born. You don't have Avengers without it. You don't yeah. have any of this stuff. Avengers is really just the same concept. What if all of those, all of my favorite comic book characters or, the, you know, that I had on all of my different cartoon shows that were terrible or all those dumb little movies that never, what if we could pull them all together? Right. All at once and have them all on the big screen and put real money behind it. Well, and they, what you have to understand, a lot of people in Hollywood and a lot of people in general don't like this because it wiped out actually two industries. Number one, it wiped out the B-movie producers. Like suddenly B-movies became the A-movies and so there wasn't a lot, except for horror. Horror has kind of, you know, you can still do a cheap horror movie and sell it on the concept, but you can't really do a cheap space adventure anymore because people actually expect that that's where the resources, that's where the stars, that's where the the, the, the machine actually exists to make space opera, to make stuff for kids, stuff for teenagers to get money. What they what they discovered it's a very simple business equation. Who has expendable income and who wants to go to see a movie again and again and again? It's not adults. It's not forty year old women. It's not on a hot day in the, the summer. Godfather. Yeah, no, it's just kids. <laughs> like kids will, you know. When I was a kid, same thing. You know, when I was a teenager and I had a lot of expendable income, I would see. You know, in my day, it would have been Gladiator. I think I saw that thing like five or six times, and yeah. we had like a second run theater in town yeah where you could see it for so, cheap so it's the five dollar theater yeah, it was right? just like oh like, well we got a little extra time today yeah it was like absolutely you go see first run movies at the nice theater and then but then you know on a tuesday afternoon on a you know 100 degree day yep. what's what's playing at the five dollar theater <clears throat> is oh, cool. his question it's, oh oh they're playing independence day again i think you know that hasn't been in theaters for a couple of months or a year right but who cares like it's independence day Let's go see it or whatever yeah, it was. Lord of the Rings would have been that same time oh, for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 2000. And I we saw were... those movies a lot. You know? Yeah, I saw them too many times. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even really like them that much. I liked them okay, but I just saw them because that's what, that's like what we did to hang out. You know, there's a lot of movies, like there's weird, like Ashley Judd movies or something that I just saw at the time because that's what, what else are you going to do? What, yeah, what else are you going to do, Brandon? I don't know. Um, it's air conditioned and it's a nice thing to do on a summer day. <laughs> we hung out at this pool a lot. Well, that is something else you can do, but we did that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Biked all over the place and had our own Spielbergian adventures and yeah. Sandlot baseball and yeah. all that sort of thing. But I just watched movies, guys. Also, I didn't grow up in a community where movies. we could do Sandlot baseball that easily. I wasn't far from ball fields yeah. where I grew up. And it, it, was, it wasn't really a sandlot. It was just like actual... Just baseball. The baseball well, that actually is, that, that yeah. is That is the competition, actually, is sports. Um, and it's not just playing sports, but organized sports. Godzilla, the king of the monsters, just hit this weekend. And what was there? There was a big soccer thing, right? Yeah, the um, the Champions League final was right. on Saturday and the NBA finals were on. Now, that cost Godzilla millions and millions of dollars. Godzilla is a movie that's designed for the international market. 
guess who what the what else the international market loves soccer 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 soccer, soccer. soccer, soccer, soccer. so people stayed in to watch soccer it was the biggest soccer match of the year so right and wow. that 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 really hurt people that otherwise would have been like ah let's go unfortunately godzilla wasn't a critical dar you know it wasn't the kind of movie that you just had to see because it didn't turn out to be that good i guess or the word the scuttlebutt wasn't that it was that great and so if you were kind of on the fence you watched soccer instead this yep. weekend so that the, the the b movie industry got wiped out because suddenly b movies became a movies and that's basically where we live today everything that is kind of silly and for kids is what drives the industry the other thing that by and large got wiped out was the not the prestige picture like the godfather because you still will get a couple of big oscar contending movies that will be advertised and that the studios will put money into mm-hmm. but the mid-level quirky interesting kind of movie has basically died and it held on for years it's actually done well yeah it's migrated to netflix exactly and just into the small screen but you don't get a run of something like that um i'm trying to think of what an example of this would be well just even the romantic comedies like the romantic comedies i don't watch a lot of romantic comedies but the ones that i've heard people talk about have all hit netflix Netflix. yeah it was just this past weekend there's a what was is uh mariah always be my maybe yeah, was trending all over Twitter. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Always be my baby, my maybe." What is that? Right. Oh, it's a new rom com that has dropped on Netflix. Huh. Never heard of it, but it's something that everybody's suddenly excited about because Netflix popped it in at the top, and people put went into net. And some people had been anticipating it, but right. Yeah, but that's where word of mouth type things will happen. Yeah, the thing is, it's gotten so expensive though to perpetuate the system of of these big special effects. A, you know, the B movies that have become A movies, they cost a lot to make, and so it's kind of curtailed creativity. You could at least argue that if you're going to spend two hundred million plus dollars, and that's just to make the movie, you're going to spend then you're going to spend another hundred or two hundred million dollars to advertise the movie. You want it to be a a, a, a surefire thing. And so what do you do? You rely on intellectual property that people know. You rely on concepts that have already worked. You don't take a lot of risk. Now, I think that there are interesting things you can do within that, the Marvel movies being the primary example of people that have had something of a creative vision that they've been able to bring to these surefire intellectual properties. But what you don't see a lot of is a thing you've never heard of, Mm -hmm. a new idea. I think the last one that really took hold of the zeitgeist, I mean, every once in a while I get a Hunger Games or something like that, but even that's based on a, a book, you know, something that's already had some success right. in, a le- in a lower stakes field. The last really big one that I can think of that just hit and took the world by storm was The Matrix, just a new idea. And that was now about 20 years ago. Um, what, about some, John, what about John Wick? Well, John Wick started out as a very small concept. John Wick's only become big. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, and there's okay. not there's not a lot of those, you know. I mean, it probably have... wasn't designed for sequels either. Yeah, no, it was... it's just as a happy circumstance that it. John yeah. Wick the original is a very low budget kind of affair that Keanu Reeves wasn't in any great demand. His salary wouldn't have been that big. Yeah, so you can't you can still make something like that. But the fact that there's been three of them, the fact that it's been turned into a franchise, actually, John Wick I mean, is even actually if kind of unusual. The kinds of things that you might think fit in this category like mission impossible that's a really old mm-hmm. ip well yeah and it's based on a tv show and yeah i mean they, they will do anything any, that's any what, identifiable that's what I mean. it's a, you know it goes back to the 90s with tom cruise's heyday but, but it was a tv show before that it was right like well in old... the 90s gave us all these weird things like the brady bunch movie the beverly hillbillies movie people they were actually yeah. weird the saint with val Kilmer. they were mining 50s and 60s tv 
And what, what they quickly found is that kids of today actually don't care about the Beverly Hillbillies. Those things didn't make a lot of money, but they'll, they'll, they will Flintstones, desperately maybe. do anything to kind of like, it's Stare recognizable. Somebody might pay for this based on, let's do Get Smart with Steve Carell. People might remember that, yeah. you know, and we, and we directly, not indirectly, we directly have Star Wars to thank for giving us that kind of an industry. So if you wish that there was a little bit more experimentation, because if you go back and you look at what was happening in the 70s with things like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, we watched, we never did an episode on it, but the three of us watched Apocalypse Now together, which say what you will about that movie, it's risky, it's interesting, it's a crazy gamble of a movie. It's creative. Vietnam as seen through Heart of Darkness. I mean, that's just like, who comes up with that stuff? That would never get bankrolled today. They don't take those kinds of risks. I mean, the millions of dollars that were spent to make a giant big movie like that was you wouldn't you just wouldn't do that today you wouldn't take that kind of a risk but what's interesting is this all got this all started because someone took a huge risk which is star wars exactly exactly and that's 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 the sad part of it for me is i don't just want to see the new guy play in the sandbox of star wars i want to see somebody create the next star wars i want somebody to reconfigure the elements that i love into something that looks and feels new but you don't get a lot of opportunity to do that Except in the podcast world. Except in the podcast world. We have Sanityville. And, and the Wizarding World. And the Wizarding, in the Wizarding world. world, yes. She did create something pretty new there. Yeah. That might be the better example. But she did Matrix. it first in a book. And yeah. a book doesn't cost the overhead of a book. Is, well, and books are dying too, actually. That's sad. Um, the, the blockbuster mentality has, is definitely in the book world as well. Yes, it is. Yep. With with Amazon making it so impossible for anyone to make any kind of money off of the book, really, people are just looking for your J.K. Rawlings, and they are relying on brands like Jack Reacher, like Danielle Steele, like whatever it mm-hmm. is. I don't know what it is. I'm not up with the supermarket bestsellers. Stephen King would still be yeah. one. Which like is why all your major authors who are doing any serious work also have to have side gigs, like a professor's or something. Mm-hmm. So anyone, like I think Zoe, what's her name? Who Dash. wrote White Teeth? Oh, uh, yeah, Smith. Zoe, yeah, something like that. Wait, I think that's right. Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, yeah. There we go. We got it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she teaches. They all have like guest MFA yeah. professorships or they just have their PhD, like B.H. Fairchild, who I've mentioned before. He just was a traveling professor who also just happened to be a national critics book circle poet. Right. So that's the way that they make their living now. Yeah, well, I think I think even that, even that mentality, we can probably somehow somehow blame on Star Wars. That Just that whole blockbuster idea of we're going to put all our money into a surefire thing yeah and then we're going to advertise the crap out of it and we're going to just get people i mean it's 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 as old as showmanship right it's just become writ large thanks to the way these properties have developed and it's really helped increase that divide we talk a lot about on the bookening where i'm going to mention it again modernism created this one vein of art that's now we all think of as belonging to the academy right and so even like high movies like uh, the Coen brothers and um, who else would you, P.T. Anderson, those guys who are complete, complete opposite of Star Wars, right. they kind of belong to the university people. Yeah, well, that's... That crowd, the intellectual crowd. And then you have over here with the Marvel movies and stuff, that belongs to the other crowd. That makes me really sad too. Uh, the idea of a movie for everyone, you know, I mean, you could argue that Avengers is for everyone, but it's really kind of bifurcated between the high art and the the low commercial stuff these days. And I think that's too bad. You go back and you, you go back to the 1930s or 1940s, you see a movie like The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, which has a love story. It's got great action. It's got witty dialogue. It's intentionally designed so that dad can enjoy it. Mom can enjoy it. Little kid, little boy can enjoy the sword fight. Little girl can enjoy the kiss. 
it's like designed with that mentality of we this needs to be clean and fun and for everyone. And I guess you could say that Star Wars kind of has that model to it, but it doesn't have a lot for someone that's looking for any kind of intellectual stimulation. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I miss the fact that a movie actually could be a full meal. And now it's either dessert or it's Brussels sprouts. And there's not really a lot of in between. So Star Wars has made billion dollars adjusted for inflation. One of the most popular movies ever made. Probably the most important movie of the 20th century. The most defined, well, the most important movie of the 20th century would be that movie where the train comes at the thing because it was the first movie. But it's a young medium. But certainly one of the most important movies of the second half of the 20th century. Let's say one that directly affected how we watch and how we process and what kind of movies are given us today. Why did this do this? That's my question for you, gentlemen. Why is this movie so beloved, given the fact that it kind of sucks? Let's do this. Let's talk about what you're... So we've all watched Star Wars in preparation, A New Hope in preparation for this. Yeah. Let's talk about what our experience was, and then let's talk about the movie in general and why we think it works or doesn't work. So what was your experience watching Star Wars this time, gentlemen? Um, I sat down and watched it with my kids. It was fun. It was fun watching them react to it, and it was fun realizing again how effective of a kids movie it actually is Mm -hmm. which you know if you approach it as an adult thinking you're going to have the same kind of experience that you had as a kid or you're going to love it as much you're going to be very disappointed if you watch it through the lens of kids as a kids movie then it's pretty great and so just uh, sitting down with my kids watching them be super engaged with it was fun and uh, i wrote down a couple of of moments that sort of sort of illustrate uh, how well it worked, I guess. So you have like these l- little dorky moments all throughout the the film that just seem kind of clunky and silly, right? Like, oh, she's going to hide the plans in the pod and shoot off the pod. Oh, the guys are going to be like, oh, it's just an empty escape pod being sent to this planet. Probably it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they're going to come back to Vader a little bit later and be like, well, we can't find the plans anywhere on the ship. But there was this escape pod that was launched. And Vader says, she must have hidden the plans in the pod. <laughs> and, and you know, you think of that as just being really stupid. One of my kids was just like, wow, Darth Vader is really smart. <laughs> <laughs> like By the he, way, he figured it out. I, he solved the problem. <laughs> I have a question. Is it a plot hole? Why didn't they just blow up that ship? It's just a plot hole. It's stupid. They would have just, like... Star Wars as it is now, they would have just blown it up because it was there and it was leaving the thing. They would have just shot it. They have a Star Destroyer. There's no reason they can't just... I guess when you watch the movie in isolation, it's like, well, we don't exactly know what the rules of engagement are here and what the what happens in this universe. And there there might be fact Like, we can just assume there's factors, kind of all the stuff about the diplomatic mission and how... Yeah, how, you keep- yeah, much of a train wreck it would be for the Empire if they actually killed Princess Leia and all this kind of stuff, which doesn't make a lot of sense based on how Rogue One yeah. ended. No diplomatic mission to Alderaan. No, no, uh, that was that was dumb. And I, I I like Rogue One. We'll get to Rogue One, but Rogue One actually, in some ways, does enormous favors to this movie. But in other ways, it just makes it make even less sense. I'd say it, it makes it have some uh, tongue-in-cheek tension that wasn't there to begin with. Yes, but it's it, a really... It makes it feel actually more, in some ways, dramatic. Yeah, no, it's it makes it more poignant, but it also makes it make no sense, I think. I don't know. We'll talk about it when we get to Rogue One, maybe. But uh, what else did your kids have to say about this movie? You know, as a kid, you, you latch on to 
R2D2 and mm-hmm. C3PO and so my kids just watching them love those characters and there's a that moment pretty early on where Luke walks away or whatever and R2D2 bleep bloops and C3PO says, "No, I don't think he likes you and I don't like you either." Boop. <laughs> <Yeah>. Boop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know whatever it was and you know one of my my oldest daughter was just like, "Oh." One of my sons jumped up and he said, "Hey, I like you." In fact, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And that was pretty funny. That was pretty cute. Pretty cute, yeah. So just seeing them really engage with the movie on that level. And I don't know, there's a couple of dumb little examples early on, but I was, you know, I was watching for that. And so that's why I wrote it down. But yeah. Brennan, same questions? Yeah, I mean, I had fun watching it and my kids enjoy this. And it's fun watching it with your kids. I don't have any special stories to tell about it because I didn't write anything down like that or Mm -hmm. I don't think there was anything that really stuck out to me that way but general impression is it's fun it's harmless Mm -hmm. it's not great right (laughs) the the dialogue is pretty bad yeah but the kids enjoy it and I think one of the best parts of it as far as the kids are involved is just are the the minor characters but they really attack they really get attached to them like Chewbacca yep or R2-D2 or um, C-3PO to an extent. Mm-hmm. But even like the little Jawas, is that what they're called? Yeah. Those creatures at the beginning. like Lucy, Lucy. Lucy's fascinated by those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember being scared of them as a kid. I was fascinated by, at this time, by how clunky their special effects are. Their little mechanical eyes inside their suits are pretty obvious. Yeah, they just look like little flashlights. That's HD. That's Blu-ray not doing the movie any favors, I'm guessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, pretty similar experience. It's fun watching these movies. With your kids, but as an adult, it doesn't do a whole lot for you. Yeah, well, I I watched it with my fiance, and she kind of remembered Star Wars. It was interesting because she didn't think she remembered anything about Star Wars. She really couldn't remember the last time she'd seen the movies. There was it was interesting what she got right and what she got wrong. There's a lot of it that had just soaked into it, whether she'd even ever seen the movie or not. There's a lot of it she just knew because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah, when Obi Wan showed up. She said, oh, man, I thought he was way younger because she was picturing Han Solo. Yeah. So that was a mistake, a, which I dare say Aww. most people wouldn't make. <laughs> um, <laughs> she expected a hot young guy, but it was not. It was an old man. She, she said two other things of note. It's just well, interesting. Was she expecting Han Solo or was she expecting you and McGregor? I asked her about that, and, and she kind of made it sound like maybe she was expecting you and McGregor. But then when the real Han Solo showed up, she was like, oh, that's the guy. So, gotcha. yeah, she, she thought Obi-Wan was the young, dashing yeah. rogue. The other two things, she, when, we, when we got to Obi-Wan's apartment and they were hanging out and Obi-Wan was talking about the Force and all that kind of stuff, she was like, man, shouldn't this have been like a half an hour longer? She just felt like it was going by and hitting these plot points really quick, uh-huh. um, which was the opposite of experience that I was having because I was just like, man, this movie, I forgot how much time it just spends on world building and, hey, that's a cute robot. Um, mm-hmm. But for her, it was like, I'm supposed to accept all these characters just because the movie told me like, come on, like, give me some, let me spend some time with them, which is, which I should say that's, is interesting because all that stuff's on the cutting room floor. There was tons of material about Luke's life on Tatooine and him watching a big space battle, him actually watching the space battle in the sky, like with bigs, just like looking up, which actually sounds like kind of a cool scene. Yeah. It all hit the cutting room floor. George Lucas thought it was too complicated. And he said, let's actually make this the droid story and follow them and just have let them be the through line until and then they can like trade the ball off to Luke. 
But if we try to do too many things at once, it's just going to be complicated. Huh. So he did that. And I guess it was the right choice. The movie certainly seems to have done okay for itself. Third thing, my fiance felt really bad for Darth Vader. She, That's interesting. It was, it was interesting. She, she really latched onto the idea of Darth Vader as outsider. And she really, like the fact that none of the other Imperial dudes took his religion seriously, was, she was like, nah, I guess I can say she just came from a situation at school. She just graduated where a bunch of people didn't take her religion and the fact that she wanted to like marry me instead of get a PhD seriously. So maybe that's why, maybe she felt a little bit like a, a, a black robot monster. Which explains um, why she's starting to wear a, a black cape. And right, yeah. A breathing machine now. She did also get all of her limbs chopped off and then burnt up in lava. So um, On purpose, which was weird. Yeah, that was <laughs> not something I generally recommend, but she was just like, aw, Darth Vader, nobody takes him seriously. Yeah, choke that guy out. <laughs> choke that guy out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I actually responded to that too. I really liked the idea of Darth Vader as someone who is an outsider. Who's Absolutely. A weird, like, I think. He's I, a relic. I almost want to even say the movie's lost something when they just made him the, the supreme commander of all evil in the next. I mean, obviously, he has to be a very potent figure for the films to work, but I kind of like the idea that the Empire is this big bureaucratic machine that perpetuates itself and is doing just fine. And then you have this weird psychopath robot guy, man, yeah. on the, <laughs> who believes in this outdated religion. Uh, it's kind of a like Rasputin in the. Um, What's the dynasty? That, That's interesting. Um, the um, Romanov. The, in the Romanov dy- dynasty, you know, somebody that certain people <laughs> take very seriously, and they should, but also yeah. not so much. I like that idea. Well, it's interesting, because I used to really sympathize as a boy with Darth Vader a lot, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, my granddad used to... Yeah, I think, it, I think I, you got to tell the story. Oh, I mean, yeah, we would be driving. A lot, so I would always... I loved my granddad. This was my dad's dad. He's the mm-hmm. guy I would watch like work in his work wood shop a lot. And he was just a man. And we'd drive in his old orange beat up pickup truck to go to the store or something. And when we would go, he'd do two things. One, he would always pretend like he forgot who I was, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which just drove me crazy. <laughs> and then two, he would uh, always, he would like start talking to me about things I liked. And one thing he liked to talk about was Darth Vader and he would call him the dark tomato. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I just, I, I've been like, no, granddad, it's Darth Vader. And he'd be like, you mean no Dark Tomato? <laughs> so, but I felt like he was, uh, felt like he was picking on Darth Vader. Right. Like Darth Vader deserves some respect. And I wonder if it didn't have to do with that mentality that Darth Vader is kind of an outsider. And for right. a kid, kids like monsters, mm-hmm. but there's something about Darth Vader that has clicked in a way that other monsters haven't. Yeah. I think even in a way that Voldemort doesn't quite work. Yeah. Well, Voldemort is such an adult kind of a figure. Like, I don't yeah. think kids sympathize with Emperor Palpatine all that much. But no. when, when somebody like Frankenstein, kids tend to sympathize with Frankenstein. I think boys especially, they like have these bodies that they can't really control very easily. And so yeah. like they accidentally punch out their sister or something and they get in trouble. And so when they see a big hulking kind of a monster character that's capable of destruction, I think I think little boys just love those kinds of characters yeah that's interesting i think huh. that's just my theory off the top of my head but and with darth vader i mean it works for the movie because the force is slowly becoming more important again right and so it would make sense for him not to be essential at the beginning right but as the importance of the force and actually the way the force has been running the empire the whole time anyways becomes more apparent then he also has his ascension right so i think it just matches the way the movies work too yeah it actually works even really if it's well. incidental 
Yeah. Which it probably was slightly incidental. Well, the question of how much is incidental and how much is not in these movies is an interesting one that I don't yeah. suppose we'll get too much into today. But uh, George Lucas likes to, in retrospect, claim that everything was on purpose. And I'd say there's a decent amount of evidence to the contrary. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can understand why that's the story that he wants to tell. Guys, let's talk about what makes this movie so potent. Why do kids still love this movie? I didn't care about this movie at all watching it this time. I thought it was kind of boring. I'm sorry if that's sacrilege to some of our listeners, but I don't know. I kind of think like kids movies are for kids and that's okay. Like it's okay that there was something that was really great that I loved. And, you know, it's like eating something. I've digested it now. Like it gave me so much and I just let it go. (laughs) Let it go, Luke. I just think, I think there's really something to be said for finding new things and letting go of old things. I don't know. Um, I just I know there's going to be people that hear me say the movie didn't do much for me and they will actually be angry about that. They will be offended by that because it's Star Wars. It's great. You're just a snob. It's like, no, the movie did wonderful things. It fueled my imagination during my childhood. And now I'm not a kid anymore. I put away childish things. Anyway, I'm not doing anything to make my anti-snob case, am I? But <laughs> I hate Star Wars. I hate fun. And if you're a listener, I hate you. And, and um, that's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. But it's just not for me. The dialogue's simplistic. I like witty dialogue. I like interesting characters. This movie doesn't have those things. It has other things that are just as important and wonderful. And we're about to talk about those. They just aren't so much the things that I look for in movies anymore. But why does this movie work? Hero's Journey, that's why. Hero's Journey, Jake. What's that? Well... Uh, let me back up two things, Hero's Journey and Wild Context. Mm-hmm. So Hero's Journey is the idea that, for those of, of you that don't know, the idea that the, the, there's one big story that we tell, and we tell it over and over and over and over again. And a guy named Joseph Campbell uh, thought he could distill it, and it's based on union psychology and a whole bunch of crap. But it's basically the story of, an outsider who gets drawn into adventure, kills the dragon and gets the girl and comes back a changed person with something for everybody. Yep. And I mean, that's that's a really simplistic view of it, but it's just... I mean, if you really don't know, just think uh, The Matrix. He's a dude. He's kind of an outsider. He suddenly gets swept up into a big adventure. He has a choice to figures make. Out, he makes a choice whether he's going to move forward or or go back into his dream world. He decides to be a hero, and then he gets trained by his mentor, and then he fights the villain, and then in an absolutely unmotivated, hilariously uh, sexist twist at the end of The Matrix, he gets the girl for absolutely no reason, except for that that's how hero's journeys work. And that's, that's why it works. actually works in the movie. You, you accept it, people. Yeah, you just accept it because that's these are the stories that we tell. Even though they've done no work. And they're how... And the whole idea is that, you know, we need these stories because they help us make sense of our own lives and the journeys of our own lives. And so they resonate. And so uh, George Lucas read Joseph Campbell. Literally read Joseph Campbell's and book. And said, I'm going to follow this, this point template. by point by point. I'm, I'm just going to take this template. I'm going to follow it point by point by point. I'm going to have characters. And these characters are going to be, uh, I don't know how intentional he was about this, but they're basically going to be really flat avatars for you so that you can just simply project yourself onto them. They're going to be flat screens. We've talked about this a million times on our podcast, The Booking. 
if Luke Skywalker was a more complex character, he'd be a less effective character because mm-hmm. it's not about him. It is for me as a viewer, actually, I want him to be more complex, but that's my problem, actually, because if little boys are going to put themselves in their his shoes, he needs to actually be as flat and two-dimensional as possible. So that they can imagine themselves as Luke Skywalker. Right. They can, Luke Skywalker is easy to translate as them. And oftentimes, like Frodo Baggins is the most boring character in Lord of the Rings. Neo is a complete cipher in the Matrix. You think about these kinds of stories. The hero, the, the eponymous hero. Part of the hero. point is the hero is, the exists hero is for you to be, yeah, to, to, to put yourself in. Mm-hmm. You f- your imagination actually fills out the quirks because it's you. You imagine yourself in his position surrounded by cool, colorful sidekicks and characters like Han Solo and R2-D2 and Chewbacca. And so you take this sort of very basic, elemental, fundamental, deeply resonant idea, and then you set it in this amazing world where you have alien landscapes and binary sunsets and creatures all over the place that are just different and colorful and fun. And and the idea of uh, the force, this thing that you can tap into that's deep down inside of you. And if you just could tap into it, you you can become exceptional. You can manipulate people's minds. You can control your surroundings. You can make the one shot that is a one in a million shot eventually you can you know move things with your mind and all kinds of cool stuff like you have access to power superpowers yep. that are just beneath the surface if you can just let go and reach out with your feelings right, right? super simplistic stuff but you know it's really so he did a killer job of world building and creating a a context that set everything off uh in stark relief but that setting, what you're talking about there, the, the otherworldliness to it is very essential to this process working. So if you think about, you've made the point, I'm not sure you made it yet, but this is a good point. Mm-hmm. You've talked about this maybe in another podcast or something. Star Wars isn't really sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is a fantasy. It's fantasy, yeah. yeah. And that's important because fantasy works differently than sci-fi. One of the reasons Game of Thrones is popular is because it has that gritty realism. Mm-hmm. But it's really not fantasy. It's like trying to be that kind of historical fantasy. And right. it's... I have real issues with Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. people who claim they like Game of Thrones. Yeah. But that's an aside. If you look at the things that really work well, Lord of the Rings, um, even Narnia, and the things that Lewis would build, Star Wars, even Beowulf to an extent, mm-hmm. they deal with these worlds that don't quite feel like our world. And it's because if they feel like our world, then we want them to look realistic because we know what our world works like. Like why does Odysseus, when he meets all the gods, have to be away from his home? Well, it's because we know that when you're home, the home works a certain way. Right. Why does Harry Potter have to go to this remote place to actually have all the magic work? Well, it's because we know what the world works like and it looks like. It's mm-hmm. Hogwarts, where Hogwarts has to feel separate. That's because these sorts of stories deal with things that are uh, feel otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people might call them transcendental. Right. <laughs> but what the real word is, is, is archetypes. They're these big notions, these big things that connect us to um, huge categories. And that's all that archetypes mean. It's Mm myth-making. And myths deal in these huge concepts that all cultures share in common. And so that's what the hero's journey draws from, are these huge concepts that all cultures do share in common, like good and evil, Mm -hmm. like the hero, the concept of a hero. I mean, there's 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 a reason that Beowulf and 
What's the famous Assyrian one? Oh, uh, 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 what is his name? Um, starts with an M. Um, we should know. We're just both. Oh, uh, Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Thank yeah. you. Um, not an M, but it has an M in it. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Whenever you're put on the spot, you can never remember. What yeah, you can never. But yeah, so Gilgamesh, all these important, all these big stories that really, Odysseus, mm-hmm. right? They all deal with a hero. And that's because every culture is thinking about heroes and what it means to be a hero. They're thinking about good and evil relationships between people, fathers and sons. They're thinking about these. And that's what Joseph Campbell was talking about. He thinks it's a subconscious thing that connects us all, mm-hmm. but it's because and I think we're going to talk about this later, so I don't want to get there to the right. answer. Sorry. It's, right. But there is a reason that this is true, and it oh, is Christian right. in its origin. And we'll get there, I'm right. sure, right? <laughs> but that's, what, that's, what, that, that's why these movies are successful, is because Lucas drew on these huge concepts, these categories that we all, the mentor, mm. good and evil. You see that, obviously, with Darth Vader right. in his clothes, the, the outfit that they chose to put him in. He looks bad. He looks bad. But the empire itself is very bad, and it's very stereotypically bad. They mm. blow up a whole planet. Right. <laughs> you know, and so J.J. Abrams had to one-up that by blowing up how many planets? Three planets, what was it? <laughs> it's like, look at me. I can blow up three planets. <laughs> they all dress in black. Yeah. Yep. The hallways are black. Mm-hmm. The Everything is black, unless yeah. it's red. And well, so, and yeah, 20, and so, and Luke, Lucas is nothing if not a baby boomer, so it's really drawing on some 20th century stuff that would have been really potent. That's maybe a little less potent for us these days, although it still very much lingers in our iconography. Very but, Nazi. But yeah, exactly. World War II yeah. is all over this movie. Absolutely. The, the dog fights. You know, the shape of the helmets. Yeah. Yeah, Vietnam. yeah the, whole, the, whole, the whole end of the movie is just a World War II bomber movie, which yeah. Lucas would have grown up with. And so, the, But that itself, is there are these collect... So one way of saying it, can we mm-hmm. introduce this term? Sure. Would be the collective unconscious. Yes. And this is a Jungian term. It comes from Carl Jung, who mm-hmm. was a disciple of Freud, who introduced the idea of st- the subconscious to our... Every human draws from this, and it's a kind of a mystical idea. It is a com- completely a mystical idea. And it, a lot of magic theory comes mm-hmm. from this as well. But that we have this collective pool of unconsciousness that we draw from that then affects the way we think and look at the world. Right. And that it's... It's kind of like Plato's forums as well. I mean, you've had these ideas throughout history. This right. isn't anything really all that new. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that we look at it. And so it would, if it would, according to Freud, according to Jung, it would explain why we have all these myths and all these different cultures that draw from these same sources and have these same mythologies that are all about heroes, about good and evil, mm-hmm. about the journey, about mentors, about sidekicks and stuff like that. And they all have the same fathers and sons. Yeah, fathers and sons. They all draw from the same thing. Well, let me just ask this question now. Do we agree with that, fellas? See, it certainly seems to have worked for George Lucas. He's made a bazillion dollars. Certainly seems to work for a lot of people when they draw on these archetypes. And yet, collective unconscious, all this kind of stuff sounds a little mystical to me. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, on the one hand, it's garbage. But it is, on the other hand, tapping into something that's real, which is the way that God made the world and yeah. the story that story of the world is it's unfolding as God is ordered and designed it. So the reality is readjust the focal point a little bit and realize that the reality is that God designed the world and everything in it. And there is a story that has been in the process of unfolding over history. And we know what the story is and all of the, everybody else has to have their own counterfeit of it. Right. If they're going to be a, a compelling substitute for God and for true religion, they need a compelling counterfeit, which means there are always going to be similarities. The The best counterfeits are awfully close to the truth. Mm-hmm. But the the real story is the story of mankind's fall from 
grace and God's judgment and uh, God sending his son to be the hero of the story. Yeah. And he gave us a conscience. Mm-hmm. He's written it on everyone's heart is the law so that men really do know when they're breaking the law. Right. Right. It's just our sin and rebellion that keeps us from repentance. And also he has given us the book of nature. And that's really what a lot of, so really what, what Jung and Freud are talking about is the fact that we have metaphors, we have nature that we draw from, and we, we can see truth within nature in the way that the world works. Well, and and it just like, has, it has to do with the stuff that's been made. It's part of creation that it's written into that. Well, and what somebody like Campbell, Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero's Journey would say is, hmm, your religion actually uh, matches a lot of other things. Seems like actually you were drawing on the collective unconscious there when you came up with Jesus and all this stuff, because actually it's very similar to a lot of stuff. And what we would say to that is precisely the opposite. Your myth-making is, of course, similar to our truth, because when a truth defines the world, Chesterton famously wrote about this, when a truth defines the world that way, of course people are going to have all kinds of counterfeits, and of course it's going to be resonant for people. It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the specific archetypes in this movie. So we have the hero. What kind of a hero is Luke Skywalker? Do we think he's an effective hero? What does it say about us that Luke Skywalker is one of our big heroes? I was surprised by what a brat he was in this movie. Yeah. My girlfriend, another thing she commented was she just said, was he written to be played by an actor this age? Because he feels like a nine-year-old or something. Like you expect him to get sent to his room the way that he's... The way oh, that he's, yeah, I don't want to go to... What does he yeah. say? But I was going to go to the Matash, to the Tashi station to get some power converters. You can waste time with your friends later. No, I've never really... I mean, Luke has always been a problem for me with right. these movies. And I think we talked about that in our bookending episode on Star Wars. I do think he's whiny. I do think that he feels... Um, he's not the uh, hero that we would expect from other things. Right. He's not Beowulf. No, he's not Beowulf. That's for he's sure. He's not Odysseus. Mm-hmm. Even though Odysseus does kind of whine sometimes too. But and is he the? What was the other question? Is the hero we deserve? I don't know. I mean, or what, what does it, it say what about it, what us? Does it say about I mean, Luke that he would be the prototypical hero of our times? I don't know. Or what does it say about us? Like, does it say anything about our effeminacy and our? I don't know that immaturity? it does. I'm, I'm I'm asking the question. You you guys can answer it. I mean, but there's a sense in which Frodo is also one of the whinier characters in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but Frodo doesn't really undergo a transformation as a character he's basically a pretty good guy who yeah. remains a pretty good guy and his transformation is only to sort of be corrupted by the ring and yeah. but then I, not really and had ryan johnson not ruined luke and messed up so badly with him i do think luke does have an arc he well, becomes by the last movie pretty awesome right he becomes a jedi in a very zen sort of a way and i mean it's yes almost more of an eastern th- kind of a hero's journey it's like a really petulant silly boy becomes a samurai is basically what we're watching more, yes. more than like the young awesome knight becomes an old awesome wise knight yeah who still has who still is young and immature and makes bad decisions which is what captain america could have been right yeah may somebody say something about our culture that that's the way we all want to end our stories i can't tell you that he used he bothers me in this movie but i understand why they make him so bratty and petulant i think they could have done it less and i think that's just luke i mean because anakin has some of those issues in the other movies as well I just think George Lucas likes to write his young, immature characters that way because he—I th- think he thinks that's the best way to show immaturity and in y- youth. Well, I don't mind a hero's journey where the hero has to go on a journey and has to learn things and grow and be disciplined. I keep thinking of Empire Strikes Back. All the stuff with Yoda to me as a kid was really painful because Luke kept messing up and doing the wrong thing and being 
lame and being stupid and being young and it was very relatable like i i understand i have had that feeling with teachers and mentors where i'm just disappointing them and it sucks and this one it, when watching it again it almost felt like he kind of got away with it and i didn't like that as much as an adult at least like he's a brat and then it turns out that he's a brat that deserves to have superpowers and doesn't really need to learn anything about himself and this just taking this first movie by itself i, well, I think this is a question we're going to keep revisiting as the movies go yeah so how does he develop Luke? I mean, I, we all agree that he's a brat in this movie. And then at the end, he has superpowers. It's kind of like Harry Potter. Right, exactly. So Harry Potter is a bit of a less of a brat. Right. Well, okay. Same question about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is he an effective mentor figure? Is he a good mentor? What does it say about our culture? What does it say about George Lucas? What does it say about the movie that Obi-Wan Kenobi is the the mentor in this movie? I don't have I don't have a particular... You don't, you don't have an answer? I don't have the answer. I'm asking the question. Uh he gets very little screen time. He says a couple of things about Force and about Luke's dad. Yeah. And he cut out, he cuts off the guy's arm and uh, then he dies. So are we saying he's just flat and boring or? I don't know. As a kid, I th- always thought he was pretty cool. He's better than Dumbledore. Okay. That's there. There's a, there's a thought for you. Why? Because Dumbledore never tells Harry that he ever did anything wrong. And Obi-Wan says, it'll be enough when Luke is whining about how his speeder didn't get enough money. Yeah. They're both liars. They are both liars. That's right. He doesn't tell the truth about anything. Right. Whether it was meant to be this way or not, the fact is now almost everything that Obi-Wan said to Luke was a lie. Right. Meant to help him grow, but withholding information because he's too young for it. Well, where does that come from? There's a question. Where does the idea of the trickster Trick, trick store, <laughs> trick, trickster mentor come from? Because Yoda does the same thing. Dumbledore is kind of the same way. Where does this concept even come from? I suppose in there, it occurs in mythology. There are those. I think it's pretty Eastern. Um, it is Eastern. It's also Merlin to some extent, who is himself not Eastern but pagan in an Eastern sort of a way. Yeah, but but well, very Celtic. Mm-hmm. Okay, Merlin's an interesting analogy and contrast because Merlin's not. I mean, I guess it depends on where you're looking, right? But Merlin doesn't lie. Right. Merlin may withhold information or Merlin may just sort of like, Gandalf is more like Merlin. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Gandalf doesn't really necessarily lie. He doesn't lie. He tells you what you need to know. Yeah. Well, Morphe, that just for the the moment. The Oracle in the Matrix, they wrote her the same way where she tells Neo the opposite of the truth so that he can be inspired to achieve or whatever. She, she, She tells him not just a... I omitted something, but she she actually straight up lies. Does she? I don't remember that. She tells him he's not the chosen one. Oh, yeah. And then it he sort of is, depending on how seriously you take those sequels. But <laughs> in the context of the original Matrix, he is the chosen one. And she says, you're not. She just says, it's not you, kid, or something like that. And then Morpheus says, this is what made me remember it. He says, she told you exactly what you needed to because hear. Because then in the, well, he eventually just becomes like the reset button. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, Neo, you're going to find... There's a difference between knowing the truth and walking the truth. What is it? Is it an Eastern thing? I'm not sure if it is or not, but it definitely is a trope. I'm not sure. I don't it know feel, it, it feels like that to me, but I'm going to I can't think of an have example. a hard time giving yeah. you, you know, my mind goes to like, to like Kung Fu. Right. Like Grasshopper, Kung yeah. Fu. Right. You know, uh, or, or like Mr. Miyagi or... Well, so Any the number of, of every like, samurai movie and every we- a lot of westerns too of westerns and easterns is this powerful character who's a super awesome warrior, but he comes in a package that's very 
disreputable. And so he walks into a bar, nobody takes him seriously, and you're going to get your arm cut off because you just yeah. thought this was an old man. But actually, this is an ancient, awesome, yeah. cool. You know, that's that's every kung fu episode. That's every, you know, old yeah. samurai in those movies. They wander into a village that everybody just thinks they're a beggar. And then the bad guys make make a mistake. And, you know. And then John Wick kills them all. Right. Exactly. And Gandalf has some of that. The hobbits just think he's this old man that does fireworks. Right. Um, and he's not really revealed in his uh, true so that, glory. So the idea of the, the reclusive concealed power of the old wise mentor, that's that's all over the place. And in a way, you could you could connect that to the biblical prophets or to certain of them. Oh, absolutely. Elijah and right? Elisha especially. Exactly. I that's what of. I was thinking of. But even Jesus himself, there's lots of stories. There's lots of biblical stories of someone who doesn't look all that powerful, but actually has the power of God. I mean, that's just like, I don't like to talk about the Bible as using tropes or something, but it's it's a constant theme in the way that God has written history. So I think there's a reason. Moses is going to walk into the court of Pharaoh with his shepherd's staff and, you know, the stench of sheep on him. You know, 10 plagues later, he's going to march out of right. <laughs> Egypt with the whole host of, the, of Israel. And then you make the mistake of going after him again, and your army's going to get swallowed up by the Red Sea. And that is Obi-Wan to some extent, but he, he is also, and as is Yoda, as is every mentor figure in a lot of these, these modern properties, he's a trickster. And Obi-Wan's the consummate trickster in, all, in the whole Star Wars universe. Like yeah. lies and deception and manipulation are sort of Obi-Wan's it's like his thing. stick. It's like his thing. Yoda, you just have to get past level one and then he'll be straight with you. Yeah. Once he's, Yoda's like, I'm going to test you. And then once you've passed the test, then we're cool. Right. But Obi-Wan, you never really know like what it is. He's in, in some ways, I think it's almost like an unsophisticated person's idea of what a wise man is like. Yeah, but actually, that's not the wise man, George. That's just you not understanding. Exactly. What you was, may, the have, way, you you may feel like you've been tricked. Was, yeah. Sure, we've all been felt, felt like we've been tricked, but that's because we tricked ourselves. Yep. Well, and maybe that's the whole point. No, it's not. No, it's not. The <laughs> it should point. be. No. <laughs> be nice if it was the whole point. Well, uh, using the Lord of the Rings again as a foil. Mm-hmm. If you think about who is the trickster in that movie, it's Saruman, right? Or that book, right? Yep. Saruman's the one who has tricked Gandalf, and then he tries to get Gandalf to see the wisdom behind his trickery, right? In the Cimmerillians, Sauron and the other bad guys like him, they were the tricksters. But our culture has this desire to make the trickster into a good guy. Right. So like, yeah. for example, Jack, whatever his name is, that pirate. Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow or um, well, the more famous example would be Loki. Yeah, right? that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And the Marvel movies have a lot of trouble with this mm-hmm. because Loki's supposed to be the bad guy, Yep. but he's such a lovable person as a trickster, they keep like wanting us to forget that he's responsible for the murder of you know, thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I might connect it to the ascendancy of nerds in general and the ascendancies, uh, perhaps we could even say, of effeminates. You know, the idea that we don't really like people who just win through their strength. And as we don't a, like as, Captain America. Yeah. As someone that's watching the movie, I don't feel strong. I don't feel empowered. And so, yeah. but what I do know is that I'm smart and I can play video gaming just to be a cliche here. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm somebody that can be clever on the internet and I can be clever with people and I, I the girls don't like me because i'm handsome but they like me because i'm clever and so to give 
to make that into the heroic quality, yeah. that into the way that, I mean, that's all that Harry Potter is. If anybody wins, if there's any quality that's really honored in Harry Potter, any virtue, well, that, it's just the virtue of being a little bit smarter. I mean, that's how Harry wins against Voldemort. He knows something. He has a piece of information. It's not a moral victory. It's a, my wand works a certain way and I know it and you're betting against it or you don't know it. Um, and the part of this is like, well, it's like, spy movies or anything like that where you do win through trickery mm -hmm. and just think about how the polyjuice potion plays such an essential role in harry potter yeah yeah things seeming one way but actually being another right like in any shakespeare play things that seem one way but are actually another they're either played for comedic effect or they're well, going to be demonstrations the, of evil yeah they're going to be the cause of somebody's ruin right yep and that's because it is interesting to th i hadn't thought of this before but we have, I think it's an immature, it may not be Eastern, but it definitely is an immature way. It's like a child thinking about, well, you've been tricking me the whole time. Mm -hmm. But no, it's just because I've had authority and I haven't been telling you things. Right. <laughs> it's not because I've been tricking you. Yeah. It's because you're not ready for this information. Mm -hmm. It's like we're getting to a point with our sons where suddenly they're ready for information that's going to be not so fun to talk to them about. Right. Yep. And so it's about this authority and the people have, like elders or pastors, they're not, they don't always tell you everything. Mm -hmm. but they don't trick you. And that's fine. But I think that that makes people like Rowling and George Lucas angry that people would actually have that sort of authority over them. Mm -hmm. And so they just have to imagine that it's all about trickery. Yeah. And like it's this cunning deceit that that's what's going to win the day. And so they've made what used to be an aspect of villainry or, I mean, in a way it's also very Greek in its origin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Odysseus because, is- Odysseus is all about it. Yeah. He's tricking everybody. Yeah. But as we talked about, it's just silly that certain people think that that makes Homer some wonderful teacher because all Homer is is expounding on the glories of trickery. Yeah, and Odysseus is just a bad person. And yeah. those weird little tricky games that he plays with his wife at the end are weird. And yeah, you know. but the Greeks thought that that was fine. But it was about glory and fame. It was not about moral virtue. And so Christianity was supposed to have changed that. And now you want mentors who are wise, legitimately wise. And what you should have... Is, and who are is, good authorities that can be trusted. Yeah, so what, what, how Harry Potter would have worked better is if Harry thought all along that Dumbledore was tricking him, only to find out, no, it's Dumbledore using authority not to give him certain information. And if Dumbledore had ever come out and just said that, it would have been a very different Well, Dumbledore, Dumbledore does come out and say it, but he, 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 he says that he's apology, wrong. Yeah. yeah. He says that he was wrong to do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. which and, was just dumb. Well, and you could almost maybe pull it off with Star Wars with Obi-Wan saying... I mean, it's a dumb speech. It's one of the dumbest speeches in the original trilogy. You're going to find, Luke, that a lot of things depend on point of view. And from my point of view, but you tweak that speech a little bit, maybe you could turn it into you weren't ready for this information yet. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it doesn't quite get there, but I think it's closer than anything Rawling did with Dumbledore, I suppose. Uh, let's give Obi-Wan a little credit here. There's You can see the reasons for why Obi-Wan did it. I think Maybe it's just that Star Wars is so iconic, I just accept it easier than I accept something that I came to later in life, like Harry Potter. But to me, Obi-Wan's trickery feels a little bit more inevitable than, like with Dumbledore, it's always like, well, the plot needed Harry to not know this. Yeah. And I, you could say- And the then same. it needed to be Dumbledore's fault, not Harry's. Right. I suppose you could say the same thing about Star Wars. The plot needed to save the big revelation until the end of Act 2, but- But you can still find other ways to do that. Yeah. There are ways to do that. Lord of the Rings worked just fine, and- Gandalf sits down with the hobbits at the very beginning and explains to them what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, and there are still revelations that you have to, they come out, but. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Well, if you were writing Star Wars, here's a fun game. And you know, I mean, we don't know that George Lucas really did, but let's say, you know, in your second movie at the end, 
it's, it's going to say, Darth Vader is going to say, I am your father. And Obi-Wan obviously needs to have this information, but you want to save it for the audience. How do you do it? I don't mind that specific story that Obi-Wan tells. I wish that he'd had a better explanation for it later. Like, I don't mind everything that happens in the first two movies. Like, the Ben, why didn't you tell me? That's a fun, interesting question. But then Obi-Wan needed to have a better reason, a really killer answer for it. Yeah. And the killer answer could be as simple as you weren't ready. But he doesn't really say that. He just says some dumb stuff about point of view. And I mean, if he could have said the good version of I sensed in you enough fear already Mm -hmm. that was going to keep you from fulfilling your destiny. And I was afraid that if I told you that your father turned, that you would have never started down the path to become what you needed to become. Here's an idea, Luke. You were a petulant brat who was already angry with your uncle for holding you back. There's enough of it in you and enough insecurity that what you needed was the confidence. And what I needed to see was, does this kid have what it takes to handle, to really face down, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. The idea of facing down the empire was going to be daunting enough, but having to do it, knowing that you're facing down your own father that you've never met might have crushed you. And it might never have, we, we might not be standing here today. Like, Right. There's a way to tell it that way that that works and that really. What did you want from me, Luke? By the way, your dad's a big black evil robot, psycho robot. <laughs> you need to you need to fight him. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have to kill him or or turn him to good one way or another. But you're gonna have to face him down. Right. And also, he's ten times more powerful than you. Right. <laughs> and he used to be my best friend. <laughs> so what are you? And also, I kind of killed him and left him for oh, nearly killed him and left him for dead. Right. <laughs> Probably should have finished him off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a way to do it. I mean, maybe if they'd done it that way, we would have accused it of Dumbledore syndrome a little bit. I don't know. But I think there's a way to do what you're talking about that would that would work well. Or Obi-Wan, here's another idea that works that I think is actually really great. Luke, we ran into each other in the desert and you came to my place and you started asking questions and I didn't know what to say. And then we got involved. I'm sorry, what do you want? Then we needed to rescue a princess. (laughs) And we had like less than 24 hours together. (laughs) And and maybe I would have figured out a way to to tell you, but you know, I died. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the I I actually think that expecting me to tell you everything about your life story within the first 24 hours of us meeting is kind of a ridiculous expectation for you to place on me. Luke, you're going to find that a lot of things come down to timing. (laughs) (laughs) Only having 24 hours with you, boy. (laughs) It's not like I was your headmaster for seven years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, everybody. Well, this is part one. We still have to talk about Princess Leia. We still have to talk about the robots. We still have to talk about the Force. We still have to talk about a lot. We will we be still back. still have to figure out how to talk about Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back probably the week after next because this podcast is only technically supposed to come out every other week. It's hard for us to actually get into the studio that often. But we will be back week after next with part two of A New Hope. And I look forward to seeing you there, Brandon. Yeah. Jake. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast which was produced by nathan executive produced by nathan and jake and until next time may the force be with you